That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, good friends. It's the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday morning, February 24, about 8.30 a.m. in our nation's capital. It's time to look back at the news of the week with our weekly reporters roundtable. Welcome. Well, with Congress out of town, most of the news this week was outside the Beltway in Ukraine, where President Biden made a surprise visit to reinforce America's resolve to support Ukraine as long as it takes. In Poland, where Biden rallied neighboring European nations to step up their support of Ukraine. In Iowa, where Senator Tim Scott kicked off his unofficial presidential campaign with an official listening tour. In East Palestine, Ohio, where former President Donald Trump showed up with Trump water and Trump baseball caps. And in Plains, Georgia, where former President Jimmy Carter chose to embark on his final days in hospice care. What to make of it all? Well, let's turn to today's panel. Abby Livingston, a writer for the American for the Almanac of American Politics. Hi, Abby. Good morning, or hello. Hello, and good morning. Uh, Kirk Mado, editor of the National Journal Hotline and host of the National Journal Podcast. Hello, Kirk. More everyone. Thanks for having me. And Philip Bump, uh, back with us again, national col- columnist for the Washington Post and author of the best-selling new book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America, which has been featured on the Bill Press Pod and reviewed in the New York Times last Sunday. Hello, Philip. Good morning. Well, let's start. This is a historic day, February 24, the first anniversary of uh, Russian troops rolling into Ukraine. Everybody thought that... um, Kiev would fall within days, maybe weeks. Uh, Philip, if you had to, let's talk about optics, right? If you were looking for the perfect setting to show a president on the job, under fire, you probably couldn't do better than Joe Biden walking with President Zelensky in front of that cathedral in Kiev while the air raids were uh, warnings were sounding. Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely remarkable. I mean, I think that the entire endeavor to get Biden there to meet with Zelensky in Ukraine, which was, you know, just I don't think surprising from the standpoint that, you know, we're used to these sorts of symbolic events happening sort of below the radar. But I think still was 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 very powerful. I mean, obviously, it did not ensure that Joe Biden wouldn't face any criticism from the right, uh, because obviously they're, you know, they're, they're going to find criticism where they can. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was, had you said to someone one year ago today, hey, in a year, Zelensky and Biden will be walking through Kiev together, you know, relatively safely. I, I don't know that anyone would believe that was possible. Uh, so yeah, I think it was symbolic uh, uh, in, in that respect, too. And of course, while he was in Kiev, uh, the president remarked on the fact that uh, despite all the skeptics and doubters aside, he was there, he was standing there, and Kiev was still standing. Here's the president. 
One year ago, the world was literally at the time bracing for the fall of Kiev, perhaps even the end of Ukraine. You know, one year later, Kiev stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. Kirk, Kiev is standing, the trolleys are running again, it's not saying the war is over, but that is a remarkable um, occurrence. Exactly. I mean, how crazy was it to wake up uh, last week and see the images of them walking through Kiev, and then you hear in the background the air raid sirens and everything? It's it was, as you guys said, a great symbol of the strength that Biden's showing right now. And I don't see how you can look at you know where we are from a year ago in Ukraine and not think that this is a giant success. Uh, for the Biden administration. The problem is voters don't necessarily uh, see it that way right now. I mean, you look at the latest NBC poll, I believe, earlier this week that said that we're still very starkly divided over how much more we should get involved with Ukraine. I think about 50-50. You know, if you break that down among Democrats and Republicans, it's Republicans want to start scaling back, Democrats support more intervention. And you look at what's going on in the House right now with Kevin McCarthy saying that we don't want to write a blank check for Ukraine anymore. I mean, as we're at this place of not victory, but, you know, defining the expectations and at a spot right now where they have a fighting chance, we're kind of at this inflection point right now as well with what's our future involvement going to be as we move into the second year of the war. Right. And uh, this morning, uh, President Zelensky uh, flat out stated that the within a year the war will be won. Ukraine will have uh, chased, uh, uh, driven Russia out of all Ukraine uh, territory. Uh, Abby, I wanted to ask you about the logistics of it. Whatever you think about um, our support for the war, whether it's enough or, or not enough, the logistics, as Philip uh, indicated this a little bit in, in, at the very top, of pulling this trip off, you know, Sabrina Siddiqui was one of the two reporters there. She's a regular on our roundtable. And her pool reports from the White House showed, I mean, the way they were able to keep this a secret, you know, and, and take a different plane and then take to Germany and then take the motorcade to the train and then the train to Kiev. It was on. We've never seen anything like that. I, absolutely. And what it reminded me, and I'll recommend this book to your listeners. My favorite book I read during the pandemic was about the Blitz called The Splendid and the Vile. And it was about Winston Churchill and the American diplomats. And these, you know, it was really hard for them to sit down face to face because of all the U boats in the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, it just made me kind of wonder if FDR had not, um, you know, been handicapped. Would he have made these secret trips to? to London or that sort of thing. And so it just, it, it, it reminded me to a, of another era along with his speech in Kiev. This, this president is not the greatest public speaker, but it was an effective speech, um, especially when you put it on the background of this train. Um, and, and it is still, I mean, it's, it's a shocking thing that a, you know, command or commander in chief went into this dangerous territory. I don't know if that's ever happened in my lifetime outside of a base, like on Thanksgiving when George Bush or Barack Obama did it. Um, and so it's just a um, dramatic sign of strength. And the other thing, just noting that this is the anniversary, um, if you had told me a year ago today that Joe Biden would come into Ukraine on a train, I would have thought you misspoke and said Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and so it, it is a reminder of like, 
how far and how long this year has been and how far Ukraine has come. Yeah. Uh, let me second uh, the recommendation for The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson, an incredible book um, about that period you mentioned. So, um, Philip, if the politicians or leaders were not going to uh, Ukraine or to Kiev this week, they were going to East Palestine, Ohio. Right. <laughs> uh, every other day, it was a Republican one day, a Democrat the next day. Uh, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg finally went there yesterday. Uh, and pointed out that Marco Rubio and other Republicans who have been criticizing them for doing not doing enough were those who actually voted against tougher train safety regulations last year. This has become a, a war of blame or a war of optics, too. Who's winning this war so far? Well, I think the very fact that we're having this conversation that Buttigieg was there indicates that the right is is doing better on this particular fight. The the the, the evolution of this fight, I think, is sort of uh, under understood to going phrase there. Uh, but you know, it's, it's sort of weird how this happened. So the the train derailed in February third, and the EP was there on February fourth and set up monitoring stations and so on and so forth, doing the things that it normally does, and sort of flew under the yep. radar until yep. about ten days later when it really surged as an online issue. And you know, these these apocalyptic images of you know this giant mushroom cloud of smoke from when they burned off the vinyl chloride and things along those lines really kicked off a bunch of conspiracy theories. And I think it was at that point. They had folks like Tucker Carlson and J.D. Vance jump on this as a, hey, we get to use our you know, anti-government, anti-business shtick here and apply it to the situation. You know, obviously there are, of course, I don't mean to downplay that there are obvious risks involved in this. And certainly a lot of uh, uh, we don't have a clear understanding of what exactly is going to happen. Uh, but this is there's a very much a, a sense of opportunism that's at play here and a using this as a leverage you know, in the same way that happened with the balloon that instantaneously became this massive failure for the Biden administration, you, you know, regardless of sort of the surrounding context for it, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a play again here. And I think that, you know, the very fact that people were there this week, Trump was there this week, sort of speaks to the politics of it. Yeah. Uh, but Kirk, uh, the Republicans, Donald Trump or Mark Ruby, they cannot escape the fact, it was a fact, right, that after the Amtrak derailment near Philadelphia, President Obama put some very tough news safety regulations, rail regulations in place, which Donald Trump repealed. Um, that kind of undercuts their attempt to blame it on the Biden administration. No? Right. And, you know, I believe there was an investigation that said that the those specific regulatory rollbacks would not have prevented this because it was more of a like a mechanical mm -hmm. issue with the train. But your point still stands that Republicans are kind of have, trying to have their cake and eat it, too, here with this, that this is, you know, a failure of the Biden administration when they're, you know, also rolling back these other regulations that would have prevented you know, similar accidents from happening here as well. It's it's kind of become, to Philip's point here, you know, the actual uh, scale of the tragedy has kind of been lost as it becomes just a theater and political backdrop right now. You, you mentioned earlier that Trump was there handing out, you know, Trump-branded water, Trump-branded hats and everything. I mean, he's using it, you know, to halt the campaign and everything. And it's been kind of uncomfortable to watch from afar like this just just plain political politicalization of this tragedy right now but this is you know part and parcel for what's going on right now in politics uh and abby when we get back to the facts the head of the national transportation safety board yesterday morning said this was an accident that was completely 
preventable, basically saying this should not be political at all, right? It was a mechanical problem. There were two sensors uh, that didn't show this thing heating up fast enough, and by the time it passed the third sensor, it was too late to fix. Well, and it, so, it, it kind of yeah. reminds me of the BP oil spill in the sense that this is something highly technical that the layman probably doesn't understand, but it sort of spins into this, like, why will President Obama not come down to the Gulf? Um, yeah. But I, I think what is interesting on two points with the politics of it is, um, number one, uh, if you think back to eight years ago, the last open Republican primary this is a this is very different from where the traditional primary season starts. Typically, people are in Iowa, um, Republicans, and you know it, it just feels like a strange way to practice politics because that's what is happening here. And, and at this point in the cycle, um, and the second thing is, is I just think Pete Buttigieg is an interesting figure here. He is he's probably the best person in the Biden administration when it comes to the rhetorical com combat with the, the right. And I think he, he is, um, Republicans like to come after him to maybe get rid of him before he can blossom. Um, and so it will be interesting to see how this pans out. Cause I do think he'll be a future presidential candidate. Um, and, and so how he handles this, he has come back at them on Twitter, but I just also just wonder how much someone who is not in Ohio is paying attention to this. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the presidential primary. This certainly was a campaign event for former President uh, Trump. Um, and we also saw another Republican step up this week, not to announce his candidacy, but to go off on this listening tour to Ohio. Of course, I'm talking about South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. So, Philip, um, he was asked the inevitable Roger Mudd question by Sean Hannity, right? Why are you running? And what different? What what's the difference between you and Donald Trump? And given the opportunity, Tim Scott basically said, "Oh, we don't disagree on anything, right. uh, and we're so happy and proud to have him as our as our leader." Why is he running? <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, Nikki Haley did the same thing when she was asked yes, after yes. she made her announcement, and I and I and I get why people would want him to differentiate, but I really think it's important to remember where this is occurring. This is Sean Handy show, man. Sean Handy is a Trump <laughs> ally, right? His viewers have been indoctrinated over the course of the past eight years to be endlessly supportive of Donald Trump. Going on Sean Handy's program, that's not the place where you say, "Here's where Donald Trump is wrong," right? You know, more broadly, yes, they need to be able to differentiate themselves from Trump. But I'm not at all surprised. You get on Handy Show, you're like, Trump is great. Isn't he, Sean? And then you go on and you do your attacks elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, at some point in time, someone's going to have to throw a punch. The place to do it is not Sean Handy's program. <laughs> so, Abby, at, at some point, they've, they've got to, if they're running against Donald Trump, they've got to take him on, right? Well, if they don't, he will take them on. So, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that'll be inevitable um, if this primary field matures the way it looks like it will. Um, I also just think it's interesting. Tim Scott's from South Carolina and Nikki Haley is from South Carolina and she actually mm -hmm. appointed him Senator and helped set off his trajectory. And so, um, that is always a pivotal primary. And, you know, if both of them or one of them makes it that far, what will that do? Um, and so I think there are many questions he's, he's in disposition, um, much sunnier than most Republican candidates I've observed in the last several cycles. And so he's, he almost feels like a throwback. But I do find these clever lines deflecting on Trump will wear thin fairly quickly. Right. Um, 
Uh, and um, Philip, the other person looming out there, of course, is Ron DeSantis and the latest sure. polls showing um, that Ron DeSantis actually outpolling Donald Trump 41 to 33 uh, in the latest poll that I saw a couple of days ago. Um, and DeSantis hasn't actually taken on Trump, but he's certainly not cozied up to him either. How do you view that shaping up? Yeah, no, DeSantis is interesting because you're right in that he has not thrown the punches at Trump that he really has the space to do. I mean, obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of polling that, sh that shows the national race in different places. Uh, it certainly is the case a lot of early state polling shows DeSantis close to Trump. Uh, and I think a lot of people expect that if Trump finds himself essentially in a one-on-one -on -one contest, then he's in a lot of trouble. But one of the things DeSantis has been good at doing over the course of the past several years is extending the conversation, the, the conservative conservative media and right-wing conversation into places that Donald Trump is not comfortable going, into things like, you know, openly embracing an anti-vaccination position, really seizing on and driving a lot of this anti-gay and anti-trans rhetoric that we're seeing uh, on the right, that Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump, when he ran in 2016, he had no background. He had no, he, had, you know, he was a blank slate, so he could say anything, and everyone's like, oh, okay, fine, cool. Now he actually has a record, and he has a record of, for example, not opposing trans bathroom bills and things along those lines, or, or not supporting trans bathroom bills, right? So, so now he has a record, and Ron DeSantis, is, who's a fairly new figure in national politics, was able to push the conversation into a space that Donald Trump, particularly limited because he wasn't on Twitter and Facebook, was not able to play as effectively. And I think that's really helped him build a lot of his support. But Ron DeSantis has also not taken any punches. You know, he, he ran a very easy campaign last year in retrospect uh, uh, for governor. He didn't take a lot of punches there, certainly not on the national stage. I think one, when and if uh, it becomes the, the the point at which DeSantis and Trump start actually brawling, which is inevitable. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if DeSantis is going to be able to survive that as easily as he's surviving this one. Well, Kirk, no matter how many Republicans uh, jump in, uh, the question is, is Donald Trump still um, got his sway over the party that he once had? Front page, Washington Post this morning saying, Trump for, uh, support for Donald Trump among the Republican base is softening nationwide. Um, do you see that same thing happening at the National Journal? Well, what we're tracking right now as well is the number of endorsements that every presidential candidate has as well. And what we're seeing is we're not seeing not only the support from the base, but also rank and file Republicans as well in office are rallying behind Donald Trump. Hmm. Sure, you have you know folks like J.D. Vance, uh, you know, Henry McMaster in South Carolina uh, endorsing him right off the jump, uh, you know, a few other members of Congress as well. But a lot of them are keeping their powder dry as well right now, waiting to see what other options there are. And, you know, I used to cover the House and everything. And one of the things that I really like there is you can see patterns develop there that get uh, then manifest themselves uh, further up the ticket. And it's interesting to not see a whole lot of Republicans file behind Trump right now, because it does seem like they were trying to keep their options open. You know, I still think uh, former President Trump does have uh, sway over the base right now. It might not be as potent or as powerful as it once was. But what we're seeing here is, you know, the Republicans not falling in line behind him. They don't fear him, I think, as much. You think about this time about 
two years ago in his first public appearance at CPAC since the insurrection, where he named and shamed the ten Republican the House Republicans who voted to impeach him, swore revenge. You know, now eight of them are not coming back to Congress this year, and it was a real show of strength. But there's not that fear or that whole iron hold that we used to see here um, this time two years ago right now. Uh, and the most dominant uh, reaction that the Washington Post found in talking to all these people across the country was among the Trumpers. We still love Donald Trump, right? We are totally supportive of Donald Trump. We just think it's time to move on, right? So it's not so much an anti-Trump thing as how great he is, but Let's let's move on. And right. we'll see. It's, a, it's a Trumpism without Trump. And I think that's what you're seeing with how Tim Scott and Nikki Haley have been skirting the differences question that we talked about a little earlier. But I must say, before we take a break here, that the biggest political news of the day, presidential wise, is that Marianne Williamson has announced that she is running again for president. <laughs> uh, so well, she's Joe, the only she's the only Democrat formally declared right now. That's right. So Joe Biden, um, watch out. Uh, Abby, I guess, really, among the Democrats, they really w hope that Donald Trump ends up being the nominee, don't they? Well, I think there's a lot of Democrats who remember Bill Clinton thinking Donald Trump would be a great opponent in 2016. So, um, you know, there that is a very divisive yeah. uh, approach to a primary uh, in, in the Democratic world, but it also did work very well for them in the midterms when they helped get a bunch of nominees on the Republican side. Um, I think he probably is. I mean, I, I guess when you just if you try to break it down like a math problem, you know, Biden beat Trump. That's that's something that's happened. Um, and, you know, the result of it, that doesn't mean it'll actually happen again. But he has defeated him and everyone else is very untested. Um, I, I just will point out again. Everything about this is just unlike any presidential contest I've ever covered, just even just in the beginning of like the, 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 the rhythm of the cycle and just how uncertain everything is in both uh, primaries, although it looks more and more like the president is seeking reelection. Indeed. Uh, although, well, and Philip, just a, a final button on that again before we take a break. There were stories this week, though, that, you know, Biden originally said he was going to make his decision over the holidays and then announce early in 2023, okay, now we're almost into March, and now they're saying, well, it might be until April before he decides. What Should we read too much into that, or are we reading too much into that now? Some people saying maybe he's not going to run after all. I think that if, if President Biden were making the decision not to run, uh, that there is an enormous amount of behind-the-scenes complexity that, that follows from that, right? That, that he is going to want to make sure that the party is as well-positioned as possible uh, in order to actually be successful in 2024 if he were not to run, that there would be a, a very concentrated effort to figure out what the primary looks like, how they limit the damage as much as possible while at the same time letting people run. There's, you know, the, the mechanics of that are, are huge and complicated. And I think Biden is very keenly attuned to that. And I say all of that to say that I think that it is worth taking at the word uh, uh, those who say that it's likely that he's going to make his announcement over the short term. I, I don't see indications uh, that there is some huge behind-the-scenes effort to try and figure out what a primary looks like that can lead the Democrats in a successful position for 2024. Well, given that lack of 
uh, uh, given the given the lack of evidence that there, that is underway, mm -hmm. it's safe to assume that it, it probably is. And one could also make the argument, uh, you know, why hurry? It's not that he has to uh, uh, announce very soon in order That's to head true. off to head off uh, uh, opposition in the primary. Well, he has scared Marion Williamson off, so uh, other, than, other than Marianne Williamson, indeed. Okay. Uh, with, with that, let's take a quick break here and then pick up on some of the other news of the week, including uh, the release of those January 6th tapes by uh, Kevin McCarthy, which has gotten a lot of attention here on the Bill Press Roundtable. Today's roundtable with uh, Kirk Beto and Abby Livingston and Philip Bump brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Teamsters Union, the largest and the most diverse of all of our labor unions, over 1.2 million members under President Sean O'Brien, representing every aspect uh, of the American workforce from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, to bakers in Maine, as they say, they cover everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. So we salute the members of the Teamsters, thank them for their great work building America, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back on today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod this February 24 uh, with today's panel from the Almanac of American Politics, Abby Livingston, from the National Journal Hotline, Kirk Beto, and from the Washington Post, Philip Bump, Kevin McCarthy, renew, uh, fulfilling a campaign promise to the hardliners in the House this week. Uh, he released the full um stash of tapes, what is it, 41,000 hours of tapes of the January 6th insurrection to one talk show, one television host, to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. Uh, I'd like to get each of your take on the big two questions. 
why would he release these tapes and why only to Tucker? Kirk, start off with you. You didn't get a copy at the National Journal. No, I think that I'm, you know, I, we, we were on the mailing list. You know, I'm going to keep trying here uh, to get those tapes. You know, I just yeah. hope that this doesn't yeah. affect uh, Fox's stock prices and everything like Tucker's so concerned about, uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, but I think this is uh, a play from McCarthy to shore up uh, more of the support from the, the uh, Republican base right now. I mean, you saw on full display how weak he appeared during the speaker vote and how many concessions he had to make to some of the most far-right members of the party right now. And I think that this is just a further continuance of that. I mean, Tucker has you know, spread misinformation about uh, the January, about the insurrection. He in intimated that it was a false flag operation. This is like the textbook definition of an unreliable narrator. And to give him access like this in the name of Transparency seems just incredibly hypocritical right now. Now, you know, the 41,000 hours of uh, footage and everything is going to be a lot of, you know, cameras just looking at empty places in and around it for now. But uh, it, it, I think the concerns that Democrats have raised about, you know, security concerns about Capitol Hill police, about members of Congress are very valid. And I think that, you know, Tucker has proven time and time again that he's not necessarily going to be using this for the most uh, ethical and beneficial lens uh, in terms of being a you know good journalist. And I'm curious to see how he repackages this and what it looks like in the end. Right. Uh, Abby, it also shows um, or maybe raises questions about um, McCarthy's hold on the speakership, right? That, that the only way he stays there is by basically giving his uh, extremist um, colleagues now or supporters uh, anything they want. Absolutely. I, I mean, in the I am writing for the Almanac of American Politics daily right now. We're, we're on our deadlines and I can see it in the committee assignments. Um, you know, in the past, um, you got good committee assignments based on how much money you raised for the NRCC, things you were doing to help colleagues, demonstrations of leadership. And I mean, they were bargaining chips and these were very, very exclusive elite committee assignments. People worked their whole careers to get on. Um, and basically it, it appeared from what I can tell is, you know, a trade, you vote for me for speaker, I'll give you appropriations. Um, and I just also want to pick up on something Kirk just said. I, I used to be a TV producer. I used to sit in the edit bay and the scale of care TV producers put and how images are presented on television is astronomical. And what, like Kirk said, Carlson's not a reliable narrator. And it makes me very nervous. It, you know, was someone seen walking into a room that was something completely innocent that gets twisted? Um, and it's some innocent person, uh, that kind of thing. And I also just think this is an extension. It must be restated over and over. January 6th within the United States Congress is different from every other issue because people who are involved in the lawmaking thought they were going to die that day. And this is picking that wound and extending it a little bit further. Uh, and Philip, in his defense, defending his decision, uh, Kevin McCarthy told um, Jonathan Swan of the New York Times, we're just letting the sunshine in, you know, that's good for everybody. But this is the sunshine through the Tucker, only through the Tucker Carlson filter, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is the singular most reckless thing I've seen an elected official do 
uh, in decades. You know, I think this is probably a more reckless decision than any individual thing that Donald Trump did over the course of his presidency. It is, mm. it is handing this all of this information to this person who is a motivated actor who has spread explicitly false claims about this exact event, who is undoubtedly, certainly going to cherry pick what he's saying to to help bolster his existing narrative or to come up with some other nonsensical one. It has been, you know, it has been analogized to what the January 6th committee did as though the work of a bipartisan committee of sitting elected officials is, you know, somehow carries the same taint of subjectivity uh, that Tucker Carlson does. It's it's mind boggling. It, It is it is an absolute abdication of, of Kevin McCarthy's responsibilities as the leader of the House. And the idea that this can be waved away as sort of just, you know, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant. First of all, we've seen repeatedly over the past several years that by giving people access to scads of information, one thing that happens is they can they cobble together conspiracy theories. Like, you know, you release John Podesta's emails in 2016. Next thing you know, there's this conspiracy theory that, that a pizza parlor is being used for pedophiles. Right. This is how this works. People go through these things and they use it to support the uh, the argument that they're already trying to make, not to try and figure out what the truth is, particularly when you have someone as dishonest and demonstrably dishonest as Tucker Carlson. Uh, Kirk, is the answer for the January 6th committee for the Democrats to release the 41,000 to everybody who wants who wants them, everybody in the media? I don't think it's going to be that simple right now because, like uh, Abby and Philip said so well, I mean, Tucker Carlson is going to use these images to paint his own narrative to create. To f- He's a motivated actor, like Philip said. And I don't know necessarily if we, if any other journalism institute could combat that right now. The chat's kind of out of the bag, and you know, to mix metaphors here, it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube once you know Tucker Carlson has started his whole process and everything. You know, I'm an advocate for getting this stuff out there. I'm an advocate for transparency, but it should be with responsible actors who can who will frame it in with truth and uh, with the. And without the Tucker Carlson lens that we're talking about here. Well, and the other question, Abby, that occurred to me, the very first person to respond to this was a congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, right, who said, all those people, we told you we were going to release the tapes, and here they are, and how proud I am again to have supported Kevin McCarthy for president. I mean, she really has someone who people thought shouldn't even be allowed to run for Congress, right, is how, now has a it seems a supersized role of power in the current Congress with Kevin McCarthy. I, I mean, I think they've demonstrated that in every way possible. Selfies on the House floor. Um, I, I think I, you know, I, I was just thinking back and um, about Michelle Bachman and sort of her place in Congress ten years ago, um, and. You know, she she did have power, but um, she eventually, you know, sort of petered out and didn't have a great presidential campaign. But they're very similar. And we are just in a different era. I don't think Michelle Bachman could have ever attained the sort of power that Marjorie Taylor mm-hmm. Greene has. And it's just a reminder of how dramatically American politics and the House GOP caucus or excuse me, conference has changed in the last 10 years. What is that power based on? I mean, how many votes does she I, I have? Think it's, social media. I think it's being able to be the center of attention. It's being able to get on Fox News. And it's just been a, a slow climb. And that is 
I, I mean, I've written about this. That is a, that that is what matters on Capitol Hill right now is the ability to be the center of attention. That matters more than any other skill set, and that is where the incentives are, and that is where the rewards are. And this is going to come to a head at some point um, when there is a crisis. I mean, I, I sit back and think about 2009 and the bailout vote, which obviously we're still still reeling from. But you know that. Pelosi and Boehner were able to cobble together the votes. A lot of politicians lost re-election over it. But like, what happens when there is a tough vote like that and the, the nation's economy or national security hangs in the balance? I don't know how you whip a vote like that if you have a Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, you know, effectively on Fox News, uh, killing these, uh, killing sort of solutions in the cradle. Right. Uh, yeah, Philip, this is a new phenomenon in American politics, right? There are the politicians who have their power not from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Uh, they can tell the parties to go, you know, jump in the lake, right? They've got right. their social media presence and base. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. The, the, the era of social media combined with the era of Fox News has really reshaped the power dynamics. And one of the things that people... Uh, uh, forget about Donald Trump is that he came into 2016 very much as a legitimate outsider. He was sort of laughed at. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't Republican. He, he, I mean, he'd been a Democrat. He, he comes in here, he's just going to announce it. But he was good at those two things. He had a regular gig on Fox News. He spoke the language of conservative media. Uh, he was very active on social media, and he was willing to elevate the nonsense that, that plays well on social media. And it really showed that he had this core base of power with Republicans, not with the Republican Party. And then he just simply leveraged the runway that the Republican Party had cleared to the presidency by virtue of decades of, of you know, the, the way that political parties work. He sort of just glommed onto that power structure, the institutional power of the party, and was able to make his way to the White House. Uh, but he he was doing this because he had accrued power in this way, in the way that Marjorie Taylor Greene has. Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, she's not a she's not a politician by nature. She is a rabble rouser by nature. Yeah. And, but that is what gets you elected in the Republican Party now. And she has proven very effective at that. And, and now what we're seeing is, uh, to Abby's point, we're seeing the Republican Party centering its power on the rabble rousing as opposed to the institutional power of the party itself. And that is a short term bet. And these people are able to raise enough money on social media to keep themselves politically uh, independent, right? Even if they're on. Well, I mean, Green is in a you know Trump plus forty district, something along those lines. So you know yeah. she doesn't have to worry about reelection no matter <laughs> what. Right. Exactly. Well, that money also keeps primary challengers away too. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene has you know a couple million dollars cash on hand and everything, and that's going to prevent any even Republican from wanting to challenge her as well. I mean, it's just it's. To everyone's point here, it's all about like the decline of leadership and their ability to, you know, give sticks and carrots out to um, advance their agenda and giving the power back to you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a second year member of Congress and she is one of the most powerful right. members in Congress and I just blows my mind to think about how much that has changed in the last decade. Right. Uh, so we end on a sad note this week uh, with uh, former President Jimmy Carter, his uh, family announcing. Um, that at the age of 98 and after multiple medical problems, he has decided uh, to enter hospice before his final days at his home in Plains, Georgia, which um, Abby um, has certainly uh, prompted a lot of people to reflect on Jimmy Carter's presidency, but particularly on his post-presidency. 
Absolutely. Right? I, I mean, I think he's considered one of the greatest ex-presidents, not greatest president, but ex-presidents and how he's carried himself and the diplomacy and habitat for humanity. Um, and, I, you know, I don't want to, this is not an original thought, a, a, a mentor and I were talking about him. And her point was, you know, why can't he be an example to this older generation that will not cede power to the younger generation um, the, to demonstrate there is life after politics. There is, there's so much one can do after giving up the power. Um, and he's a real example of um, that. And so, um, you know, I, I've only known him as an ex-president and I'm not that young anymore. So it has been an extraordinary <laughs> run he's had. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, so I, uh, you know, I think it will be, uh, we're, we're in sort of a sad moment, but I, I think at the end of the day, he was a really decent man that we, who we can all look toward. History will be kinder to him, I think, than, um, than uh, the first, first generation historians when he was president uh, were uh, pretty critical of him, Kirk. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to Abby's point here, he spent almost half his life as a former president, you know, he was an ex-president for 42 years, the mm. longest former president we've ever had, like outpacing, I think it was Hoover, who was in, lived for 32 years after he served mm -hmm. in office. But I think history is going to be much kinder to him, especially in the moment we're at right now, when we think about, you know, what the Donald Trump ex-presidency has been like in this campaign that he's putting on now. I mean, it's going to look so interesting in comparison and when i think now about you know how the cur the current batch of vets presidents will, will be remembered you know barack obama is going to spend so much time as a former president what what's he going to do with that what's history going to remember him but for now with jimmy carter i think history is going to remember him as a you know an okay president i don't think that's going to change but a good man which i think is a, a legacy worth living uh, and how do you see uh, his legacy, Philip? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to the point that Barack Obama has a lot of time left in his life, presumably, hopefully, um, and, you know, can, can make of it what he will. But Carter really sort of set the precedent, right? Anything Obama does now will be compared to Carter, and it'll be hard to surpass Carter. Carter established a new sort of post-presidency, had plenty of time to do it, certainly, but established this thing against which others will have to, to be uh, compared. And so, you know, whatever Obama does, it's going to be like, well, you know, Carter also did X, Y, and Z, which Carter obviously didn't have that same point of comparison. Uh, you know, and I think one of the interesting things about this phase of Carter's life is there's also been, to the point about comparing Carter's ex-presidency with Trump's ex-presidency, I think there's also comparisons of Carter's presidency with Trump's presidency. And considering what we know now about things like climate change and his advocacy for things along mm -hmm. those lines, there's, a, there's also this re-examination of his presidency itself, I think, that is uh, sort of shifting or has the potential to shift towards his benefit. And I will also say to Abby's point about this, you know, older people seeding young, to younger people, great new book out about that called The Aftermath, which I strongly encourage people to read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so Jimmy Carter can teach the boomers a few lessons, right? That's exactly so right. He's a member of the silent generation. I go on at length about this, but yes. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but I'm glad you mentioned what I also think, as I see, uh, a timely and and worthy reexamination of Carter's presidency. That uh, there were 
there were parts of it that really should be, I think, uh, applauded and highlighted, including the Camp David Accord, Camp David Accords, of course, but also his um, early, early strong support for the environment right. uh, and his making human rights a centerpiece of American foreign policy, which a lot of people uh, downplayed at the time, but was the right, I think, I believe the right thing uh, to do. Uh, and so we all send uh, our good thoughts to the former president here uh, at down in Plains, Georgia. Now, um, thank you, panelists. Thank you for taking a good look at uh, what were all the news of the week, at least as much as we could cover. Um, but there must have been, as you go through your day and reporting on all these stories, one story that particularly stopped you in your tracks and caught your attention. We call it our favorite story uh, of the week. Um, what, 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 Kirk, what did you find uh, particularly interesting, humorous or sad or, or outrageous or whatever? Well, like I think a lot of people this week have been reading a lot of dispatches uh, from down in Georgia after the news of uh, Jimmy Carter entering hospice care, uh, and there have been some really fantastic pieces by the folks at you know the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Mm -hmm. You know, Greg Bluestein had a great piece this week about what President's Day like was uh, in Plains after the news broke. But the one that really stuck out to me as I was going through all these tributes was. Uh, WSB TV down in Atlanta went down to uh, the Maranatha Baptist Church where uh, Jimmy Carter was a Sunday school teacher uh, yeah. for years, taught to the uh, congregants down there on the Sunday after the news broke and everything. And they were just talking about their, you know, fellow churchgoer, their, you know, favorite Sunday school teacher and everything. And it really resonated with me and humanized uh, Jimmy Carter and everything that we've been talking about here is the legacy of being a good man, a decent man, and uh, a man who is so much more than just a, a former president. And that WSB TV story really, really stuck with me. You know, I always wanted to go down to the Maranatha uh, Baptist Church on a Sunday morning just to go to Sunday <laughs> Sunday mm -hmm. school with Jimmy Carter, and I regret that uh, I, I never I, I never did it. Uh, Abby, how about you? What was your uh, particularly My favorite, favorite story? My story is about Ukraine, and it is based on a photo from about a year ago from a photographer, New York Times photographer Lindsay Adario, and it was written by Andrew Kramer, and it was of uh, a school teacher. Um, and she looks like a kindergarten teacher in Ukraine. Um, and she was being loaded up and going to the front, I get, or not the front, I'm, I'm overselling it, but she had a gun in her hands yeah. and, um, was preparing for uh, war. And it was just the most striking photo a year ago. And they followed her and she's a full blown soldier now. And it, it is just an whoa. extraordinary, I, I, I don't know if there's a better human story of this journey. This country has been on over the last year. Boy, and true of so many Absolutely. citizens, I'm sure, of Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, and Philip, uh, down to you here for the favorite story of the week. Yeah. So one thing I think didn't get a lot of attention this week was Gallup released its new assessment of the number of Americans who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, wow, and I saw found that. that it's yeah. consistent at about 7% uh, relative to 2021. But there's an interesting generational divide where younger people are much more likely to identify as LGBTQ than older people. I went back and looked at the history of polling on this and you know the extent to which people in generations over time say that they think that same-sex uh, relations 
should be acceptable. Uh, and what you see is this, this downward trend since the 1990s across the board at all age levels uh, of people becoming more accepting of this idea and that there's a correlation between the extent to which a generation views this as acceptable and the extent to which they actually identify themselves as LGBT. And I just think it's a fascinating lens, this Gallup mm -hmm. poll, into the fact that when we talk about, you know, this this really toxic effort to portray uh, discussion of same-sex relationships as, you know, grooming or indoctrination, that what this really shows is that America just generally has gotten more accepting of it, and the more accepting you are of it, the more comfortable you are in expressing it for yourself. And I think that that's a really important message that this Gallup poll actually... Came I, I thought that was a very interesting... Um, uh, survey there. And Philip, I want to know, have you uh, prepared a chart now to show that Mr. movement? Press, you should know that there are already two published in the Washington Post right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I have to tell you, my favorite story of the week comes from Florida. Philip, you went down to Florida and did a good deal of research for your book, I know. Mm -hmm. But the story out of Florida this week, the uh, leading Democrat in the uh, Florida State Senate, her name is Lauren Book, she introduced a piece of animal rights welfare legislation, uh, which was pretty comprehensive, covered a lot of things. One of its provisions uh, included a ban on driving your car with your dog's head sticking out of the window, <laughs> uh, which I see a lot of in Washington, D.C., uh, and I, the dogs always seem to be having a good time and enjoying the view and everything. But at any rate... Uh, the public reaction and response to this was so overwhelmingly negative. People saying, no, my dog likes this, and we like that, I like seeing the dog's head out the window, that this state senator, um, unlike most politicians, she accepted reality. She backed down. She didn't double down. She backed down, and she put out a statement saying, the public has spoken. This is not something that Floridians want, and she dropped this prohibition against driving with your dog head, a uh, dog sticking out of the window. So there you go. Um, I do not know, however, whether it's still okay to strap your dog to the top of the car <laughs> like Mitt Romney did, <laughs> as we remember, <laughs> uh, to his to his dismay. Maybe they need goggles for these dogs. Maybe that's the answer. I'm not sure. At any rate. Uh, and with that important news from Florida, uh, we again thank the members of our panel for taking a good look back at the news of the week. Abby Livingston, writer for the American Almanac. I get it wrong all the time. Almanac of American Politics. Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline, host of the National Journal Podcast, and Philip Bump, national columnist for the Washington Post, and of course, author of the best-selling new book, The Aftermath, Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Thank you, uh, panelists. Um, thanks, Abby, Kirk, and Philip. Thank you all for listening and joining us today. Have a great week, great weekend. And then please come back on Tuesday. We're going to be talking about the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine and where we go from here with our own foreign policy guru, uh, Joe Cirincioni, former head of the Plowshares Fund. That's next Tuesday. The next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We'll see you then.